Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. On today's episode, we're building on the conversation from the previous episode, which focused on a primer on the venture capital industry. Similar to the last episode, we are now talking about private equity, but continuing to talk not only about in this industry, how do investors in this space make money and what are some of the metrics and types of things they look for? What are the type of valuation models that they use to invest? Additionally, we're going to talk about some of the key traits and attributes that you as a prospective investor and finance professional growing into the space should be aware of and might need to have in order to be successful in these areas. What types of personalities, since as Blaze said previously, we do have a lot of college students listening, do you think are best for private equity? With private equity, at the analyst and associate level, it is all about the numbers. It is all about quantitative analysis. At the junior level, and you know, which is basically how you break into private equity and how you excel and you know succeed in private equity. Eventually, you have to be good at processes. Eventually, it's also sales and like that extroversion. You'll hear a theme that's like part of every senior role, basically. But as an analyst, as an associate, it is all about your Excel skills and your mental math. And a lot of that stems from the types of companies that private equity invests in. These are low growth companies that have been around for a long time. And as a result, there is a lot of data available about the performance of these companies. They are among the most predictable of all the companies out there. But one of the things that defines private equity investing, where private equity is literally the equity of privately owned companies, which is to say not public companies, The really hard thing about investing in private companies is that you can't just Google the value of the company today. With public companies, you can clearly tell what that company is valued at today, and you might just make a decision, I want to buy yes or no at that price. But in private equity, you have to come up with the price. And it's really critical as a result. There's no like market check like awaiting for you. And so it's just you out there. And as a result, you have to be really confident in the model that you're creating and the numbers that you're prescribing. Because if you're the high bidder, like, you know, you win, like pay up the money and you have this company now. And the other kind of, so that, so that's really like at the core of private equity is this fundamental financial analysis. If you want to work in private equity, you absolutely need to listen to, understand, and master every technical episode that we've talked about so far, because they all are a really critical piece of the puzzle. There's the core of private equity financial modeling and projection is something called the LBO model or the leveraged buyout model. I'll talk a little bit about what that means, but effectively what LBO models do is they say, I want to be very detailed on projecting the financials of this company over the next five years. I want to pick a period of time that is within the realm of feasibility of projections. This isn't like a DCF model where I'm modeling it in perpetuity. Just give me five years. 
Also, private equity funds try to sell companies after five years. They don't want to hold it for too long because they can't just like sell part of it very easily and be happy. These are highly illiquid companies where if somebody wanted to come along and buy them, there's months and months of due diligence involved in that process. So you can't just say, okay, I'm selling it today and then it's gone by the end of the week. It's a months long process. And so the LBO model basically is five years of projected financials. And then back of the envelope, basically they say, what can we buy you for today as like as a multiple? And if we can sell you for that same multiple, how much money did we make in these five years? The reason why it's called an LBO model, a leveraged buyout model, is that the most common way that private equity firms buy companies is some combination of their own cash, and then they borrow a lot of money to buy these companies too. The origin of the leveraged buyout is, you know, at this point, it's, you know, it's almost 60 years ago where really people realized that, you know, debt is cheaper than equity and there's an arbitrage opportunity. It was as simple as that. Do you remember, or like, do you guys have a good framework now on why equity is like, I don't want to phrase this. From the stuff we've talked about so far, what is the rationale for why the expected return of an equity investment should be higher than a debt investment in the same company? It's because you're taking a risk and you're not guaranteed getting money back, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So the the debt holders, if things go wrong, the debt holders always get paid back first. And so if a company is simultaneously saying, hey, we're trying to borrow a bunch of debt and we're giving away a bunch of equity and you are an investor trying to evaluate if you want both one or the other, neither, um, the first thing you'd say is, look, if we decide that the interest rate on your borrowings is 10%, there is no world where I would ever want to invest in the equity if I thought the return on that equity was below 10%. Why? Because the debt is safer. I feel like the expected return on equity concept, like this is like kind of the flimsy concept that's like, well, how do you, like, how do you decide what your expected return is? And that's where in private equity world, it's the LBO model. You do this kind of like fancy modeling and you figure out like what you're going to pay today. If all of these things happen, what's it going to be worth in five years? And you're figuring out like the core output of the LBO model is what is the annualized return I'm expecting to make if all of these conditions are true over the next five years. And the kind of like finance jargon for that is IRR or the internal rate of return. But the IRR is really just saying, like, what is my compounding annual return? So an IRR of 15% basically means that you expect the value of your equity to increase by 15% every year over the life of the deal. But of course, you're not actually getting all of that money until you sell it at the end. So the idea is like you start with some amount, you sell it in five years. And if you do some math that says, like, how did that compound? it kind of came out to about 15% a year. 
And so if you do that LBO model and you come out with an IRR of 9% and the company is offering debt at 10%, that is not investable from an equity perspective. Like you would just say, no, give me all, you know, I'll, I'll buy all your debt. Um, so it kind of like is a structural truth of investing that all else equal debt is safer than equity. And as a result, it's lower yielding than equity. And so what a couple of smart guys, including my former boss's boss's boss, you know, Henry Kravis and George Roberts did, they were among the first leveraged buyout pioneers is they said, Hey, we can go buy these you know, random companies that aren't always for sale or like people don't really know how to value them. And one, we can create a market here by buying these companies. And two, we will borrow as much money as humanly possible to go into the purchase price for these companies so that while we own these companies, we're arbitraging the difference between the costs on our debt and the expected return on the equity. And so early leverage buyouts might look something like this. They might find a company that has, call it, you know, $10 million in EBITDA. They might buy it for $30 million, which is a three times multiple. So pay 30 million of enterprise value for a company that's generating 10 million in EBITDA every year. But of that $30 million, in the old days, it would look something like $27 million of debt and $3 million of your own cash going into the deal. And so the math there is you're putting up $3 million of your own money to own a business that now, before all your interest expense, was churning out you know, $10 million of EBITDA every year. And so in a world where you're borrowing $27 million of debt. Let's just do some quick math and say that they pay 10% interest on that debt. What is their pre-tax interest expense every year? $27 million, 10% interest rate? 2.7 yep. million? Yep, so $2.7 million of interest expense. And there's there's like a tax benefit to that too. Um, but let's call this, you know, if it's 10 million of EBITDA, that's what, 7.3 million of EBITDA after the I, so EBTDA. And maybe there's some depreciation and amortization expense. You tax affect it. After taxes, the free cash flow in this business might be something like four to 5 million. So in one year, just from that free cash flow, that four to five million, you've now pocketed more of excess free cash flow after your interest expense than you put up to buy the company in the first place. You put up $3 million of your own money. And in year one, you deposited four or $5 million into your bank account. So if this company just goes totally bankrupt and is gone in year two, you've already profited. But in reality, you know, it'll keep going for a little bit and then you can sell it. And early LBOs were unbelievably profitable. Um, because also, by the way, 
what they're really doing also is they're taking some of that excess free cash flow and using it to pay down that debt. So maybe in the first year you pocketed the money just to lock in your return. You pocketed 3 million, you paid a million down on your loan in addition to your interest expense. And maybe over the next five years, you pay down another $20 million of that debt from those $5 million of free cash flow you're getting every year. And then you sell it. And where does that leave you? Even if you sell the company for the same price that you bought it for, for that $30 million purchase price, you've now paid down almost all of your debt. So maybe there's like $7 million of that $27 million loan remaining because you've been using all of your free cash flow to pay it down. After you pay down that $7 million of remaining debt, that's still $23 million that goes in your pocket. So you put up $3 million, you pocketed that first $3 million right away in year one of free cash flow. And then in five years, you made another 20, whatever, 20 million bucks. So over the aggregate, you got your money back very quickly. And then you got something like a 7x return on this deal. That was the origin of private equity. So it really was, let's find a company, let's borrow as much money as humanly possible. We'll take out our initial return as quickly as possible. And if it works out and the company is able to survive and you know and manage its interest expense, then we'll sell it and we'll make a killing. So is private equity considered safer than venture capital? And how do like the the payouts differ? It's it's a great question. And it turns out that that form of private equity is not a sustainable model. It was great for a couple of decades, but one, it gave these private equity firms an awful reputation and deservedly so because all of the incentives here are buy a company, lay off everybody, just like turn this thing to scraps, recover your initial principle as quickly as possible, and then just like let the business like, you know, peter to nothing while you're taking all the excess free cash flow out. And that was a hugely profitable opportunity when you were able to buy these companies for three times EBITDA. But as it turns out, then a lot more private equity firms started getting involved in this space. And also people started feeling really icky about giving their money to private equity funds because they're thinking like, I'm giving you my money and I'm going to profit. But like, all you're doing is you're like ruining these companies and running them into, into the ground. And so private equity, this is like in the 80s, had an awful reputation. This is like Wolf of Wall Street stuff. Um, and it also stopped being profitable because there started being so many private equity firms that popped up trying to make money in this. And so private equity today has the same DNA of borrowing money to help you buy bigger and bigger companies. But now the focus is on having a manageable amount of debt because there's no way to make money in private equity today if you can't sell the business for the same or more than you bought it for at the end of the day. So all of the incentives in private equity are how do we buy a company, then improve how it's run, and then we profit by improving the underlying business so that we can sell it for more money in the future. And to your question then about private equity today versus venture today, private equity 
on average, I'll say that the returns have a lot less skew because there are much, much fewer zeros in private equity investing. Like if you have a private equity fund with 15 companies, if there's two companies that go bankrupt in there, that's catastrophically bad. It's really, really bad. Whereas in venture, 80% of your of your companies might be zero, and that's fine. Um, so the skew of returns in private equity is a much narrower band. And on average, the total returns on these funds kind of varies by cycle. Venture is like venture funds have higher returns in these frothy markets. So venture funds that were raised in like 2009, 2010, that you know sold all of their stuff in 2018, 2019, and 2020 are going to have done better than private equity funds from the same vintage from 29 and 2010. I think if you look industry-wide, I think the returns are similar though. Like it's still investing in private market companies. And on average, these firms will you know, more or less double or slightly more than double their investors' money for them. But in venture, there are like five funds that are like 3x funds like Clockwork and a whole, you know, crap ton of funds that are all over the place and might return your money and might not and who knows. But the big thing with the money is that these private equity funds, like the size of these funds, are so much bigger than venture. The largest venture funds in the world are billion-dollar funds. The largest private equity funds are $20 billion funds. And so if you're an investor, like if I'm thinking about giving my money to a venture fund or a private equity fund, I personally might be more inclined to give it to a private equity fund unless it's one of those top five VCs. But as an investment professional trying to pick a career path, I will always gravitate towards the private equity fund because the way that these companies make money is they tend to just off the top take 20% of the profits that they generate. And 20% of the profits on a $20 billion fund is going to be, you know, if the funds do the same, 20 times more money than a billion dollar venture fund. And so that is one thing that I hope listeners will take away from this is like, if you are a you know profit maximizing person who is like where are all the dollars all of the dollars are in private equity well a lot more dollars in there there's there's a lot of dollars in all these places and there's plenty of dollars to go around for for people who are motivated but it is really concentrated heavily in private equity i mean it's it honestly seems like the difference between pe and vc like in a sense is almost quantitative versus qualitative like you, or at least the skill sets. But but it's really to say that the numbers matter in both, and the story matters in both. Yeah. But in venture, there are a lot fewer numbers to go off of, so you have yeah, to overweight right. the story. And in private equity, you can overweight the numbers, but the story still like they both still matter for both. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.